This episode contains descriptions of graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. Some stories were never supposed to be told. Stories that exist in the twilight between science and the supernatural, between history and horror. Stories that speak of terrifying things. Stories that you want to hear. Stories that you need to hear. Stories that will sink their teeth in and never let you go. My name is Mike Brown, and this is Pleasing Terrors. Episode 22, Hell Broke Loose. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the sinner cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in the sands of the desert, a shape with the lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs while all about it, real shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by rocking cradle. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. Irish poet and Nobel Prize winner William Butler Yeats, one of the foremost figures in 20th century literature, wrote the poem The Second Coming in 1919. It was considered by most to be an allegory for post-World War I politics, in particular with regard to relations between Great Britain and Ireland. In later years, when pressed about his political beliefs, Yeats would suggest that the poem was his final word on the subject. However, it is possible that the poem carries a deeper meaning, one that went unnoticed, even by its author. In addition to being a poet, Yeats was also a devoted occultist. He spent much of his life seeking contact with the spirit world and belonged to a number of occult societies. In 1885, he became a founding member of the Dublin Lodge of the Hermetic Society. In 1889, he met Madame Blavatsky, the founder of the Theosophical Society, which he joined and was later expelled from. In 1890, he joined the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which was focused on the practice of thurgy, magic intended to invoke gods, 
with the goal of uniting with the divine and transforming into a higher being. In 1917, he married Georgie Hyde Lees, who revealed herself to be a medium capable of automatic writing. This practice involved channeling a supernatural presence, which then communicated with the living by using the medium to write messages. The medium was thought to have no control over her hand as she wrote. Through Georgie, 4,000 pages were transcribed, which Yeats then studied looking for a vision of the future. He believed that a new messiah, a superior being, would soon be born into the world and would lead mankind into a golden age of enlightenment. He wanted that messiah to be his child. The flaw in Yeats' magical methodology was that he had already determined what he wanted to find through his esoteric studies. He was looking for something very specific, a benevolent entity that would help mankind. He never considered that the emergence of this new god might not herald an age of benevolence, but might instead signal the release of a terrible darkness. The warnings were there, written as plainly as his name. As a member of the Golden Dawn, Yeats adopted a magical motto, a nickname used in place of his real name, a name hinting at the revelation that was the poem, The Second Coming. His magical motto was Damon S. Deus in Versus, which means a demon is God reflected. He never considered that in seeking a vision of the future, he might instead be shown a vision of the past. At three o'clock in the morning on December 31st, 1884, Tom Chalmers woke to find someone in his bedroom. The man was standing there in the darkness, unsteady on his feet, his face marred by several deep gashes, his skull fractured in several places. His face was swollen almost beyond recognition, and he was covered in blood. But after a moment, Chalmers recognized him. It was Walter Spencer, the boyfriend of Molly Smith, a servant of his brother-in-law, William Hall. The couple lived in an apartment behind the Hall's kitchen. Spencer begged him for help. He said that he woke up in this condition and he had no idea what had happened. He said that Molly was missing. It was New Year's Eve. Austin, Texas, in the year 1884, and it was through the lens of a white southern man of that time and place that Chalmers assessed the situation. Walter Spencer and Molly Smith were black. This was a black problem, and nothing that he needed to concern himself with. He refused Spencer's pleas for help and told him to go find a doctor. When Spencer asked for his help in getting to the doctor, Chalmers refused that as well and quickly shuffled the wounded man out the door 
before returning to bed. He had no trouble falling back asleep, comfortable in the knowledge that white people had nothing to fear from black problems. There would be much blood spilled in Austin before he realized that he was wrong. The next morning, when William Hall, the head of the household, came downstairs, he was irritated to discover that the fires had not been lit and that breakfast was not prepared. His servant, Molly, was nowhere to be found. It was some time later when he heard the yelling coming from the backyard. He stepped outside to find a boy, a servant of one of his neighbors, standing by his outhouse and pointing at something behind it in the snow-covered grass. The look on the boy's face was his first indication that something was very wrong. Behind the outhouse, at the center of a large circle of snow, soaked red with blood, he found the body of Molly Smith. Her head had been split nearly in two. Her nightgown was shredded. Her legs were spread apart. That was when he noticed the trail of blood leading from Molly back to the door of her apartment behind the kitchen. Nothing in his life had prepared him for what he found inside. The walls of the room were smeared red. A pool of blood on the bed had soaked through the mattress and then through the floorboards. At the foot of the bed, a wet red axe lay on the floor. Paul sent for the city marshal. Grooms Lee, Austin's marshal, was viewed with disdain by many of his constituents. He was incompetent and corrupt, but he came from a politically powerful family, and so he was unimpeachable. He had been called to murder scenes before. He had seen dead bodies, but he had never seen anything like this. He could not imagine anything like this. The scene that he observed at the Hall residence, what had been done to Molly Smith, was like something out of a nightmare. It was like something out of hell. At the end of the Civil War, Austin had a population of 5,000 people. 20 years later, in 1885, it had grown to 23,000. It was a modern city of streetcars and telephones, of restaurants and bookstores. A new state capitol building was being built, as was a new hotel. But with its growth had come a surge in crime, much of it violent crime. The 12 men who comprised the city's police force were completely out of their depth. Segregation was the norm but Austin was considered a progressive city by the standards of the late 19th century American South. There were many black-owned businesses, as well as a college for black students. It was progressive, but it was still the South, not even 20 years after the end of the institution of slavery. Having no frame of reference for the murder scene behind the outhouse of the Hall residence, Groomsley and his men defaulted to old prejudices. A black victim meant a black murderer, 
attention would soon shift to an ex-boyfriend, but he had an alibi. The blood-soaked snow was fertile ground for questions, but yielded few answers. It made for salacious headlines, but the white community saw no reason to fear for its own safety. The moment of revelation had not yet arrived. For all of its blood-soaked horror, the murder of Molly Smith was only the first contraction. The moment of birth had not yet arrived. There were more deaths to come. At 6 a.m. on May 6th, a woman named Mrs. Johnson heard a scream from the servants' quarters behind her house. She sent her young niece to see what had happened. The girl opened the door to the cabin and found Eliza Shelley, the Johnson's servant, lying on the floor. Her nightgown was pulled up above her waist. Her three children huddled in the corner, screaming. Mrs. Johnson's niece slammed the door and ran back to the house. It was some time before the traumatized girl was able to vocalize to her aunt what she had seen. Mrs. Johnson walked out to the servants' quarters and opened the door. She screamed and ran back to the house. When her husband got home from an early morning trip to the market, he found his wife and niece sitting at the dining room table. They were visibly shaking. Mrs. Johnson said, I believe Eliza's been murdered. Johnson, a doctor, rushed out to the servants' quarters to find Eliza Shelley's body lying on the floor, her children still huddling in the corner. She appeared to have been struck in the head with an axe. She had also been stabbed above the ear and between the eyes by a long, sharp metal rod. Eliza's eight-year-old son was not able to provide much information. He said that he woke during the night and found a strange man in the room. The man asked him where his mother kept her money, and he told the man that he didn't think she had any money. He pushed the boy into the corner of the room and put a blanket over him. Soon after that, he left. The boy could not describe the man, saying only that his face was covered with a white bandana. The children did not realize what had happened to their mother until they woke up the next day. The murder of Eliza Shelley brought with it the realization that what had happened to Molly Smith was not an isolated incident. The killer had struck again. Who would be his next victim? At this point, the only thing that the people of Austin could feel sure of was that it would be a woman, that she would be a servant to one of Austin's wealthy families, and that she would be a woman of color. Even then, the white community was not overly alarmed by the killer in their midst. They were repulsed. They wanted to see him caught. They wanted the murders to end but they were not afraid. On May 10th, Austin resident William Sidney Porter, later to become famous writing under the pen name O'Henry, wrote a letter to a friend in which he made light of the murders. He wrote, Town is fearfully dull except for the frequent raids of the servant girl annihilators, who make things lively in the dull hours of the night. For all of its blood-soaked horror, the murder of Eliza Shelley was only the second contraction. The moment of birth had not yet arrived. 
there were more deaths to come. The African-American community could not afford to be so complacent. Many believed that a demon had come to Austin, and the women of color who comprised the city's domestic servants sought any and all means to protect themselves. Some bought special powders which they sprinkled around the doors of their homes in the hopes that whatever evil spirit lurked in the city would be stopped at the threshold. They procured mojo bags, small leather pouches, filled with herbs and other ingredients that when combined were supposed to bring them good luck. A black cat was killed and boiled, and its bones were given out as talismans to warn off the evil presence. Others turned to their Christian faith. They prayed each night that the angel of death would pass by their home and leave them in peace. They attended church and were reminded that demons were real and that they walked the earth. The story was right there in the Bible. The Gospel of Mark tells of how Jesus traveled by boat across a lake to the country of Gerasenes. As he stepped out of the boat, he was confronted by a man who had emerged from a tomb in a nearby hill. The man had been possessed by a demon, and the local people had chained him in the tomb. But he broke the chains and now roamed free. The man approached Jesus and said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. Jesus answered, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. He then asked, What is your name? The demon answered, My name is Legion, for we are many. The demon begged not to be cast into the abyss, and instead offered to possess pigs on a nearby hill. Jesus agreed, and four thousand pigs ran down the hill and drowned in the lake. That is where the story ends. We are left to assume that the demon drowned, trapped inside the body of the pigs. But there is another unspoken possibility, a darker ending to a story that is intended to provide comfort. The demon asked to possess the pigs. It caused them to drown in the lake. It broke its chains and roamed free once more. And in Austin, after the churches had locked their doors, after prayers had been said, after powders had been sprinkled around thresholds, in the dead of night, the blood-dimmed tide continued to rise as the slaughter continued. The demons still lurked in the shadows, and its work was not yet done. On the night of May 23rd, a young boy woke to find a strange man standing in his room. The man brandished a knife and told the boy to be quiet. He said that he didn't want to hurt him. The man then walked into the next room where the boy's aunt, Irene Cross, was sleeping. The boy stared into the darkness of the doorway and heard his aunt start screaming. Screams of fear, which soon turned to screams of pain. A few minutes later, the man ran back through the room and out of the house. The screams had caused him to flee. Help soon arrived in the form of the Whitman family. They tended to cross as well as they could and sent for a doctor. But by the time he arrived, it was too late.
the killer had attempted to scalp her, and she bled to death. By this time, a pattern had emerged to how the police reacted to these crimes. Bloodhounds were used to try to track the killer, but they would be unable to pick up a scent. Black men were arrested almost at random. They were detained and interrogated, but this yielded no likely suspects. In the African-American community, fear turned to panic. Among Austin's white population, there was concern, but they were not yet afraid. The murder of Irene Cross was only the third contraction. The moment of birth had not yet arrived. Some in Austin may have had yet another perspective on the monster in their midst. The word boogeyman is thought to derive from the Middle English word bogue, which was a type of goblin. The boogeyman was a creature found in almost every culture around the world. He was a tool to scare children into behaving. He was said to hide under the bed or in the closet and to come out after dark, after the children had been put to bed. In some variations, he would carry a child away in a sack and devour them. The monster roaming the streets of Austin seemed to be a kind of reverse boogeyman. Children woke to find him in their room, but he left them alone and instead attacked their parents. However, that changed the night that he came from Mary Ramey. On the night of August 30th, 1885, a servant named Rebecca Ramey and her 11-year-old daughter Mary went to bed. They slept in the kitchen of her employer, a man by the name of Valentine Weed. Between 4 and 5 o'clock in the morning, the killer entered the kitchen and struck Rebecca on the head. The force of the blow fractured her skull. He then dragged her daughter Mary into the wash house, where she was raped and then stabbed through both ears with a metal rod. She lingered for hours before she finally died. For all of its blood-soaked horror, the murder of Mary Ramey was only the sixth contraction. The moment of birth had not yet arrived. There were more deaths to come. Lucinda Bodie and Patsy Gibson were visiting their friend Gracie Vance on the night of September 26. She lived with her common-law husband, Orange Washington, in a cabin behind the home of her employer, Major W.D. Dunham. They decided to spend the night. Hours later, Lucinda woke up with a terrible pain in her head. She woke up to a nightmare. Orange and Patsy were laying there, each with a deep gash in their head. Gracie was missing. She heard a noise outside of the window and lit a lantern and held it up. There was a man there, just outside. He yelled, don't look at me, and lunged through the window. Lucinda ran out the door toward the Dunham's house. The man chased her. Hearing the noise, Major Dunham grabbed his rifle and ran outside. He saw Lucinda struggling with the man at the gate. The man's face was hidden in the darkness. When the man saw him, he let go of Lucinda and ran. The major raised his rifle to shoot him, but Lucinda ran toward him and into the line of fire. 
he couldn't take the shot. Again, a search was conducted, and more black men were arrested, but the investigation made no progress. New detectives were brought in, but the killer continued to elude them. The darkness that had enshrouded Austin continued to draw close, so close that even the white community was beginning to feel some measure of the terror that had engulfed the African-American community for nine months. The moment was almost here. Something new and terrible was being born into the awareness of Austin's white community. From there, it would be set loose into the world. At 11 o'clock on Christmas Eve, 50-year-old Moses Hancock was awoken by a strange noise. He and his wife had been having problems and had taken to sleeping in separate rooms. He heard the sound of someone groaning. He got up and walked into his wife's room to find that her bed was empty and the sheets were soaked with blood. There was a trail of blood leading out of the room and into the hallway. Hancock got a lamp and followed the trail of blood outside, where he discovered his wife. She was still alive, but barely. She had two deep gashes in her head from being struck with an axe. Her ear had been chopped off, and her cheekbone crushed. Her skull was split open on one side between her ear and her eye. A thin metal rod had been inserted through her ear and into her brain. What made this attack different was that Susan Hancock was white. An hour later, just before midnight, brought the arrival of Christmas Day. A Mrs. Phillips woke up to the sound of her grandson crying. She got out of bed and went across the hall to the room where her son Jimmy, his wife Eula, and their baby slept. She opened the door to find her 18-month-old grandson standing on the bed, covered in blood. He was holding an apple. Mrs. Phillips fainted. She woke up a few minutes later and saw a bloody axe laying on the floor in front of her. She stood up and picked up her grandson. It was then that she noticed her son Jimmy was laying on the bed covered in blood. He had been struck on the back of the head and the neck with an axe. Eula was missing, and there was a trail of blood leading outside. Mrs. Phillips followed it out onto the porch and through the backyard to a narrow alley where she discovered the body of her daughter-in-law. Eula's body was lying naked on the ground. Her arms and legs were spread eagle. Her arms pinned under heavy pieces of lumber. Her forehead had been caved in with an axe. She had been sexually assaulted and then put on display. Her face was said to bear an expression of extreme agony. The Christmas morning papers would carry the headlines, Blood, Blood, Blood. The demons have transferred their thirst for blood to white people. After a year of watching the suffering in the black community, the white population no longer had the luxury of being observers. Now, no one was safe. On Christmas Day, 1885, the moment of revelation was at hand. Something new was stirring in the world, something dark and terrible. 
the great boogeyman of the modern age. He would come to be known by many names, Dahmer, Ramirez, Bundy, Ridgeway, Berkowitz, Gane, Jack. His names would be Legion, and the demons that possessed these men would not be so easily exorcised because they would be woven into the very fabric of their being by birth and experience. Christmas Day, in the shadowy depths of a perverse Bethlehem, the modern-day serial killer was born. His identity remains unknown, even today. We remember him only by the name given to him in a letter written by an aspiring writer to a friend, a letter that would not be made public for many years. The Servant Girl Annihilator. His birth notice appeared shortly after Christmas in the headline of a Texas newspaper. Hell Broke Loose. What if you spend your life looking for a vision of the future, only to discover a vision of the past? What if you discover that the Messiah you have been seeking is not a savior, but a monster? Worse, many monsters, a multitude, a legion. What if all of these things were true and you never knew? William Butler Yeats spent many years seeking a vision, a vision of a new type of man for the modern age. He believed that this man would be an avatar for the 20th century, and he desperately wished for this to be a good thing. He wanted this man to help build a better future. He never found him, but he was there. The answer was there, hidden within Yeats's own poetry. Not something new at all, but instead something very old. We have always carried our demons inside of us. Fortunately, they rarely escape their prison of flesh, but sometimes they get out. Sometimes they break their chains and are loosed upon the world. Christmas Day, Austin, Texas, 1885, the second coming the birth of a new man for a modern age, a symbol not of enlightenment, but of entropy. Things fall apart, the sinner cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. This episode of the Pleasing Terrors podcast was written by Mike Brown. It was recorded, edited, and mixed by Eric Stair at Charleston Sound Studio. If you would like to support the show, please rate and review Pleasing Terrors on iTunes. Your review will make it easier for others to find us. For more creepy news, history, and folklore, or for information on upcoming episodes, please visit us at Pleasing Terrors on Facebook and Twitter and at PleasingTerrors.com. 
Thank you for listening.